prophetic voice that our poet spoke in. It has to come from somewhere, maybe the heights of heaven. So you're ready to look into the lower depths of this third evil pouch. Hi, I'm Mark Scarvo, and this is the podcast, Walking with Dante. We are in Inferno, walking slowly through comedy, Inferno, Canto 19. We are at lines 13 through 30. Wow, I can't believe it. It took us only a little over a year to get all the way to Canto 19. And here we are. We've already had an opening bit to this canto that was a proem, a prefatory poem, a Jeremiah, I called all sorts of things in the last episode. And now we're ready to go on. But you know what? I'm going to run into it. So let me start back at the proem, back at the top of the canto and run forward into this passage. O Simon Magus, O tortured disciples of his, you treat the things of God as fungible, you rapacious salesmen, bartering them for gold and silver, those very things that should be married to all that is good. Now let the trumpet sound for the likes of you, because a third pouch holds you in place. We'd already come to the subsequent trench, having climbed up the ridge to that part that hangs out over the middle of the ditch. O highest wisdom, great is your craft in the heavens, on earth, and in the world of evil. What's more, how just are the lots your power ascribes. I see that on the abutments and along the bottom, the livid stones were full of holes, all of the same size and perfectly round. To me, they look no more roomy nor really any bigger than those that make up the baptistries of my beautiful San Giovanni, one of which, not so many years ago, I cracked open to save someone drowning inside it. Let this be my seal to disabuse everyone about that. Poking up out of the mouth of each hole were the feet and the thighs of a sinner, while the rest of the guy remained inside. All of them had the soles of their feet on fire. That's what made them kick their knees so forcefully that they could have shredded twisted vines or ropes. Just as flames only move across the surface of something coated in oil, so these flames moved out from the toes to the heel of each foot. We're going to stop right there at our first glimpse of these sinners head down in the holes of the third pouch of the eighth circle of hell the circles of fraud and we already know we're being set up for church problems because of that opening bit we've got not only churchly problems we've got dante problems pilgrim writer historical figure after all who broke apart that thing and why did they break it apart to save someone drowning inside of it such a curious passage so many strange bits this is going to be a long episode of the podcast because these 17 lines are naughty so we might as well just get right on to it the passage starts i see that on the abutments and along the bottom the livid stones were full of holes all of the same size and perfectly round now you know that we have already been talking 
about the church. Remember Simon Magus and those opening nine lines about selling all that's the good of God, the good things of God, and turning it into gold and silver. We're being set up. So when we hear stones here, we immediately think of Jesus's promise to Peter. Upon this rock, I will build my church. Peter, the rock of faith. And here we have livid stones. Think about a death pallor or half dead. You might call these zombie stones. And not only are they not secure upon this rock, as Jesus says, I will build my church. These are full of holes. All those holes are the same size and perfectly round. Let's talk about that for a second. This is a constructed environment. Remember, I've been pushing this notion of structure and construction all along in the eighth circle. This is another moment. We can't see that these holes are just naturally occurring. <laughs> Dante wouldn't know that much about erosion, but still, we can't see that they're naturally occurring holes if they're all exactly the same size and they're all perfectly round. This has to be a constructed environment. And we're being told over and over again in the eighth circle of hell that everything is constructed. Why is construction so important to fraud? My goodness, we're going to have to talk about that a lot in the episodes ahead. But over and over again with fraud, we are being reminded that the poem, the environment, and the very words that come out of our poet pilgrim and the various sinners are all constructions in their own ways. So here we are, livid zombie stones, full of holes, strange, weird place, and then it gets weirder. It goes on to say, to me, they look no more roomy nor really any bigger than those that make up the baptistries of my beautiful son Giovanni, one of which not so many years ago I cracked open to save someone drowning inside of it. This is a tough bit. We seem to have suddenly gotten a little biographical reference in a poem that is so oblique about Dante's biography. Why is he in that wood when it opens? We seem to have suddenly descended into a personal statement. Let's look at this in two different ways. First off, this is perhaps one of the most famous cruxes in all of Inferno. It's got some translation problems in it. We're going to talk about that in a minute. I've translated a certain way. Other people would disagree with my translation. I want to tell you why in a minute. But let's just look at what happens here, first of all. Someone is drowning inside something connected to the baptistry. The baptistry in Florence. You know what I'm talking about. That beautiful building in front of the cathedral, built mm, starting in about 1059 Common Era along in there, finished in 1128. It's got those mosaics inside of it that are gorgeous that were started about 1209. Now remember, this is Dante we're talking about. So if you've seen the baptistry in Florence in front of the cathedral, there are no Ghiberti doors in Dante's day, those doors that Michelangelo famously called the gates of paradise. That doesn't exist in Dante's day. And in fact, the whole structure itself has been renovated in the 1500s. So the baptistry fonts or the baptistry location in it is changed. It wouldn't look the same way it did in Dante's day. And that's part of the problem with this passage is that we don't have anything to look at anymore. What happens here? Well, the old tradition, the old commentary tradition is that Dante, our poet, as a historical figure, saved, and all the old commentators say the same thing, saved a child who was upside down 
in this baptistry location, maybe in a baptismal font, maybe in a hole that the priest baptized babies over so that the water would drain down. We'll talk about that in a minute and why that is. It's, again, everybody seems to agree that this is an actual event that happened. Castelvetro, who we've talked about before, claims that there were wooden structures over the baptistry fonts. One of these structures somehow got put back in place over what would have held water, and that a child got in there, the lid got put back on it, the child was drowning, and Dante broke the wooden covering over the font. That's Castelvetro's claim. It's not clear that that's what happens. Again, with so much of the old commentary, it's often an attempt to justify what's in the text by essentially making stuff up. Uh, Benvenuto even goes farther and claims that a kid got stuck in this baptistry font, that some bystander, just random bystander, handed Dante an axe, and Dante hacked apart the marble font to get the kid out of it. This seems really dramatic, and in either case, Dante must be helping with the baptism, maybe standing with the cloth, maybe standing next to a priest. It wouldn't be out of line for Dante, especially given his political position, to have been doing that. But it is interesting that this little bit of biography enters in. And let me tell you that lately, another interpretation of this bit has been advanced, and that is that this whole thing is metaphoric, that it actually doesn't refer to anything in Dante's life. Rather, it's his, now you're going to have to get with me on this, it's his rejection of the French king. Here's the deal. When Dante was still a political figure in Florence in 1302, Charles of Valois came, you know, became essentially the conqueror. And in the baptistry, Charles of Valois required all Florentines of a certain level to swear in a public vow their adherence to him and ultimately to the French king behind him. And the new interpretation of this passage is that Dante has broken that vow. If you know anything about comedy, you know Dante hates no one so much as he hates the French king and the French royal line, and in fact, all of France itself for leaguing itself with the popes, particularly for dragging the papacy off to Avignon. We'll talk about that later in Canto 19. The whole idea here is that Dante himself is drowning in this vow and that that he has made inside the baptistry to Charles of Valois in 1302 and that he has broken it breaking his vow to support the French king that's a very modern interpretation of this passage and i have to tell you that the verb cracked open to save someone drowning inside of it that cracked open is so visceral and so real in the text that it's hard to hear it as metaphoric. If it is metaphoric, Dante's really larding it up with an extraordinarily violent verb there to rescue someone who's drowning or perhaps suffocating inside this location. Let me talk to you about why I say drowning or perhaps suffocating. Let me read it again. 
to me, that is the pilgrim says, or perhaps the poet says behind the pilgrim, to me, they look no more roomy nor really any bigger, these holes in the livid rock, than those that make up the baptistries of my beautiful son Giovanni. Okay, it's that word baptistries that is the problem. The word in the text is battezatori. That word is a plural, and it can be a plural of two different words. It can be bat which is one who baptizes. And so this would be the priests, multiple of them, who are doing the baptizing. Or it can be the plural of batazatorio, which is the font for baptism. We will never come to any conclusion on this. You can see how I've translated it. I've translated it as if it's the font. Modern translators tend to err on the side or go for the side of the ones who baptize. So in other words, they look no more roomy or really bigger than those near the guys, the priest doing the baptizing in my beautiful son, Giovanni, one of which not so many years ago, I cracked open to save one and this would be it, drowning inside of it. And you can also translate that verb. It's textually supported to say suffocating. The idea here is that there is an open pit and that the priest is baptizing mostly infants, but some children and even some adults. And we should say that almost all baptisms happen on Easter Sunday. It's a great press of crowds in the Middle Ages. They're crowding into this baptistry. They're bringing their children, and some of them, adults, are still converting. You're having adult baptism, too. And the priests uh, have a little uh, a hole, as it were, uh, and the person leans over that or holds their child over that, and then the priest baptizes them, you know, does the sprinkling. And in Dante's day, it's a little more than sprinkling. It's a little more sousing than sprinkling, but still does the, you know, it's not dunking still, and nonetheless, but still sprinkling or sousing. And some of that excess water runs into that hole, and it's, it's holy water, so it has to be collected. And if that's the case, then somebody has fallen down that hole hole by the baptizer and Dante's standing next to them and they've pulled perhaps a child out of that hole and saved them. The other way to look at this is that he's talking about the fonts, which are kind of standing up. They can have water in them, the holy water. The priest is picking up water from this font and, uh, let's say, dropping it on a kid or an adult. And that in this case, a kid kind of got lodged down there in the font itself. And mm, it might not have happened at Easter during the time of baptism. I mean, after all, it could have happened, given how it's stated. It could have happened at any time. Anybody could have wandered into the baptistry, perhaps had a child with them. The child, being a child, played around, sunk down into the font. Dante was walking by, you know, the, here's the loud screams, goes inside and saves the kid. It could be a crazy person. It could be an old person. It, just the idea that somebody is somehow wedged down in this thing, whether it be a dry receptacle for holy water or whether itself be full of holy water. If it's dry, they're suffocating. If it's full of holy water, they're drowning. The text supports either reading. And it's complicated. Now you see why this is such a wild crux. I mean, what is this biographical detail? And why is it here? And let's let's just sit for a second and talk about that. Why biographical detail here? Interesting that in a canto that is going to be so concerned with denouncing churchly corruption, 
there is this sudden revelation of the poet's or the historical personage's personal space. And it's interesting that here, at this point, it seems as if our poet, is it, makes a confession. That is, I broke the church. I <laughs> reached there, broke the font, or somehow broke, cracked open the well. I did this. And this is going to play forward in the passage, you'll see, because ultimately one of these people stuck in the holes of hell with their feet sticking up with the fire on them is going to confess his sins to our pilgrim and that the poet now feels the need to confess his sins to us, the reader, puts us, the reader, in the position of a priest and now you can go crazy. Then get so meta, you just go insane. You just turned the reader into an absolver, into a priestly figure, accepting the confession of the writer, which means that the whole relationship between author and reader is a sacred one, bound up almost sacramentally in an act together. See, you can go crazy here with the personal narrative torquing around inside this larger canto about church corruption. And we're going to come back to this several times as we move forward, because it's important to catch this personal reference here to watch what happens later. Okay, let's go to the last line of that personal revelation. The poet says, let this be my seal to disabuse everyone about that. And I think it's very important that we say it's the poet speaking because we seem to have somebody in the background telling us this is important. I'm telling you the truth now. It's a seal, which we're going to talk about later. It's part of the judgments of the apocalypse. The openings of the seals are part of the judgment. And here we have the poet laying down a seal about his own actions. Let's talk about it in several ways. One, Dante is about to break the church. We're about to enter a canto in which Dante himself is once again, just as he did at these baptismal fonts, Dante is going to break the church. And he's proven that he breaks the church only to save people. And I think that's really important to this passage to say, hey, you know, I've done this before. What I'm about to do, I'm about to call the church out. I'm about to try to break it, as it were. And I've done this before. And in fact, when I did it before, it was to save someone. So take it in the same spirit now. That's one way to look at this. Let this be my seal. Here's another way. Dante is guilty of the same sort of violence against the church that those punished here are guilty of. This is that long-standing thing that the pilgrim himself is somehow guilty for the sins that happen around him, like Francesca and lust, like the desire for more knowledge with Chaco and the gluttons, that the pilgrim often gets caught up in religious strife with Ferranata, the pilgrim gets caught up in worldly fame with Latini, that the pilgrim may have in fact been suicidal. And so Pierre de Lavagna's speech and his whole gravitational well is the pilgrim's gravitational well in a wood. 
that whole idea that the, the pilgrim repeats the sins that are going on, well, maybe that's going on here. Dante, and in this case, it's the pilgrim, not the poet. I, You heard me say I think it's the poet. But in this interpretation, Dante the pilgrim is guilty of the same sort of violence, as I said, against the church that those punished here are guilty of. He's broken the church too, just like they have. So there's a connection between him and the damned once again. Or here's a third way to look at it. And this is a way that has been recently advanced in some of the commentary. This whole story is just made up by the poet. This seems too far to me, but the point here that these kind of post-structuralist critics make is that the poet is intent on placing the story of the pilgrim as fictional as the events of Inferno itself. And so the pilgrim's fictionality is foregrounded here by the poet creating a story about the pilgrim's life. This, again, to me seems too far, but many eminent critics these days hold it. And we should at least take this away from it. Note the fusion of the pilgrim and the poet in this canto. And notice how we're bopping back and forth between pilgrim and poet and who says what and who says what when and who makes those opening denunciations, the poet, and then who goes back to the narrative, the pilgrim, and then who comes here and to me, who says to me, is that the poet at his desk or is that the pilgrim? I take it it's the pilgrim and yet let this be my seal. That's back to the poet. We should just note that unbelievably advanced fusion of pilgrim and poet. Let's talk about one more thing that it's very easy to miss in this strange little bit of biographical data. It's that phrase, my beautiful son Giovanni. It strikes me that this is the very heart of the passage. That is, that the church is beautiful, that the baptistry, if you've been there in Florence, you know it's beautiful. And it strikes me that the emotional center of these six lines that are all bound up confusingly with translation problems, with biographical problems, with rationale problems, with thematic problems, you blip right over my beautiful son Giovanni. And that is the emotional core of the passage beautiful to use that word about this baptistry. It says that the pain in this passage of what has happened to the church is real and that the pain that has happened to the pilgrim and the poet over the church's corruption is an artistic or an aesthetic pain. My beautiful son Giovanni. What was Aesthetic, and I know you think of aesthetic and I think of aesthetic in the 21st century as, you know, um, beautiful paintings on a wall, let's say in the Met Museum. But don't forget that aesthetics is a, is in the realm of ethics in Dante's day. And for something to be beautiful, it must be morally beautiful as well as structurally beautiful. And that this beautiful thing has been ruined, has been torn apart, whether by Poet Pilgrim or by the practitioners and clergy of the church itself, is all part of what's bound up in this canto. And don't miss my beautiful son Giovanni, because it is such the core of the entire six lines. Poking up out of the mouth of each hole were the feet and the thighs of a sinner, while the rest of the guy remained inside. Let's stop here at these three lines, this tercet, and say two things. One, notice mouth of each hole. This is more food, 
more digestion as is common in the circle of fraud. This is more about being eaten up. And ultimately, you will see that these mouths are eating members of the church, as it were, as they're pushed down kind of toward the intestinal tracts of hell. We'll see that coming up. I should also note, if you know something about Inferno, and if you've read it before, you may know that we will again see another sinner with his legs kicking in the air out of a mouth. We'll see that sinner way at the very end of Inferno. So there's a call here, a call and response between Canto 19 and all the way back to Canto 34. If you don't know the plot of Inferno, you'll have to wait till we get there. But just let me say, there's another sinner with legs kicking around out of a mouth. And finally, let me make one more point. These, you can probably already tell, are members of the church. Without discussing what members of the church these are yet, notice that you can see the feet and the thighs, but I do think this is important in the graphically gross cantos of fraud. You can't see their buttocks or their crotch. And I actually believe that's important because it shows Dante's reverence for the offices of the church. If this was some guy stuck down in this hole and in fact, I was looking basically at his butt sticking up. It would be, especially in the Middle Ages, an incredibly humiliating posture that we just see the thighs and then the knees kicking and we don't see the more offensive bits of the person. I think it's the poet still telling us he has reverence for churchly office. And ultimately, let me just say, and this will play out down the line, their heads are pointed toward Mount Purgatory. Their heads are pointed down and their heads are pointed ultimately down toward Mount Purgatory and ultimately up toward heaven. And if these are members of the church here burning up in hell, which they are, it's interesting that their heads are still pointed the right way. Much more of that in the canto ahead. Let's pass on to the last bit of it. All of them had the soles of their feet on fire. That's what made them kick their knees so forcefully that they could have shredded twisted vines or ropes. Notice there's just so much about breaking here, breaking the baptistry font or breaking the baptistry in some way. Here, shredding twisted vines and ropes. If you're going to push that very far, you can push it that, in fact, there is a way in which Dante broke things. These guys can break things because their legs kick about. And that links the pilgrim back to the sinners as we discussed before. It may be a way that you could argue that even further. Here they are with their kicking their feet and the soles of their feet are on fire, which are sticking out. Just as flames only move across the surface of something coated in oil, so these flames moved out from the toes to the heel of each foot. But before we talk about what this all involves, let's just say that that's a really beautiful metaphor. That Dante has caught this notion that when you pour oil on top of, let's say, another liquid or on the surface of, let's say, a rock, and you set it on fire, just that oil catches on fire and it burns across the surface and we have that same visual image here it's beautiful it's also infernal why two things one 
it's an inversion of Pentecost. This was pointed out by Reginald French in 1964, and it's become just a trope of the commentary at this point. In Pentecost, in Acts of the Apostles, flames or tongues of fire come down and sit on the heads of the apostles at Pentecost, and they are then able to preach in all these different languages so that everyone understands them. Here we have guys, churchly figures, upside down, and flames are going across their feet. So it's some kind of weird inversion of Pentecost, but it's more than that. Oil was used in the ordination of the clergy. You anoint someone's head with oil when they are made bishop, archbishop, cardinal, pope. Here, it's the opposite. It's their feet. They've been inverted. This is as if there's oil across the surface of their feet, not their head, and it's on fire. It's almost as if there's a causality here, right? That they have been anointed with oil, and it is that oil that can catch on fire here in these holes in the third evil pouch of fraud. There's almost some kind of weird causality going on between the two things. Inversion, being upside down, is crucial to Canto 19. And let me say one more word about that. Canto 19 is itself inverted in its structure. It is deductive, to use the fancy words, rather than inductive. We start inverted with the denunciation of the church. This is a topsy-turvy structure from much of Inferno. Remember Caponaeus, the blasphemer out on the sands. What happens? We see him stretched out on those burning sands with the snowfall of fire on him. We hear him blaspheming, and then we get his condemnation by Virgil. Notice, we saw, we heard, then we get the condemnation. So it's a kind of, to use a very modern rationalistic word, an inductive structure. We see it, we experience it, and then we know what it is. This is the opposite. It's been turned on its head. It's a deductive canto. It's we start with the denunciation and now we move out to figure out what that denunciation is truly about and what is so wrong with the church itself. So the whole canto, at least in terms of how most of Inferno works, is itself inverted, just like these sinners in their holes, just like somebody upside down in a baptismal font, everything is turned on its head. That is all part of the unbelievable structural notation of the 19th canto of Inferno, which we're going to continue on with in the next episode of Walking with Dante. I told you this was a full episode. There's so much to say about the 19th canto. Dissertations have been written about this canto. Books have been written about this canto. I know that I have thrown a great deal of information at you. I'm sorry it was so fast and so furious. It's just the way it goes for this canto. It's going to still be fast and furious in a few of the episodes ahead. So you might want to take these things in chunks rather than whole episodes at a time, only because the canto itself is just so unbelievably structured, complex, and dare I say it, beautiful. Subscribe to this podcast. Rate it. I'm Mark Scarborough. This is Walking with Dante.